0: Well, it is truly my joy to be here with you today, and, you know, I just, uh, you know, thank you, Hyun, for those announcements. I have to admit I was chuckling to myself a little bit uh, during one of them just because, uh, you know, I've, I've been dealing with and speaking with Huey and Hyan and Francis for a long time now, and just these men love the gospel, these men love Jesus Christ, and uh, I was just chuckling because I just found any kind of contrary notion just uh, so, so absurd, but uh, I just really... Um, I'm thankful for these men, I'm thankful for this opportunity to uh, speak here, and uh, really excited by this text. So without further ado, uh, let's open to the book of Philemon. It's a very, very short book, it's uh, 25 verses, but it is the word of God, and it is rich, it is strong, it is powerful, and uh, just so many lessons that you can take from this wonderful letter. I feel that it's always helpful to talk a little bit just about the context of any uh, text of scripture. This, uh, the author of Philemon was the Apostle Paul, who uh, you know is probably the greatest human evangelist in church history. Uh, Philemon is one of the four so-called prison epistles, uh, along with Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians, and uh, it was named the prison epistle because it was written in 60 or 61 AD during Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome. The destination of this letter, it was written to church members that were living in Colossae. And Colossae is located in what is now known as southwestern Turkey. And it was part of an area that was once known as Phrygia. And uh, Phrygians were known as a very hard people, especially towards slaves who could be executed by their masters. The church in Colossae was almost certainly started, indirectly at least, by Paul during his three years in Ephesus when the gospel was just exploding in Central Asia. When you think about this this letter that was being born, it was being born all the way from Rome, uh, far distance away to Colossae in southwestern Turkey, and it was being born by two messengers. These messengers were men named Tychicus and Onesimus. And we are informed and can also deduce from various passages such as Colossians four, verses seven through nine, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 21 and Philemon verse 12 that Tychicus and Onesimus were bearing the letters to Colossae but also to Ephesus which was on the way to Colossae and also Philemon. Now this man Onesimus is accompanying Tychicus for several reasons. First of all it was a very long trip, it was over a thousand miles as I mentioned it was much safer for men to travel together. Secondly as we will see today Onesimus has certain unfinished business in Colossae And thirdly, Tychicus is praised in Scripture multiple times, and he's a very well-known individual at this time in the church, and he's a man that would be able to vouch for Onesimus, which, as we will see, is very important. uh, Again, just these two men, I want you to think about this and consider, they were trusted to bear these three precious letters. And, And I want you to just imagine, like, what precious cargo that is, that these letters would be would safely make it to their destination and be lovingly preserved and transcribed and circulated to the point where they are in holy scripture as part of the canon and just just what precious cargo that is and it really it was kind of one of those moments for me it was one of those really wow kind of moments, just, just you read through the Bible and even, even like a series of names, it can kind of sometimes not have an, some immediate meaning, but as you kind of delve into it more deeply, it was kind of one of those scripture is so cool moments, you know, just to know that these letters were born by these three men all this distance to these three churches and that they made it into the perfect canon of what we have today as the Bible. Now, the recipient of this letter was a man named Philemon, Philemon was a faithful Colossian church member, uh, as we will see in this letter. Paul was directly involved in his conversion. He was probably saved during Paul's three years in Ephesus, about 120 miles away. And Philemon actually was a man who was rich enough and wealthy enough, affluent enough, to be able to host the church at Colossae. He was wealthy enough to be able to own slaves, and he was wealthy enough to be completely commended on being very hospitable. He was married to a woman named Aphia and he had either a son or a pastor, potentially both, a son who was a pastor named Archippus. So that's part of the background and the context to this letter and as we talk about this, this is the setting with which this letter is written. So with that, let's go to the text. But before we dive in, I wanna lay out the roadmap for today's sermon. The title of the sermon is An Appeal for Reconciliation and it has three parts. First is the unifying power of true graciousness. And in this first point, we will focus on the author, Paul. The second point is the unifying power of the transforming gospel. And on this portion, we're gonna focus on the bearer of the letter, Onesimus. And the third point is the unifying power of tremendous gratitude. And for this section, we will focus on the recipient of the letter, Philemon. Let me repeat, the unifying power of true graciousness the unifying power of the transforming gospel and the unifying power of tremendous gratitude. Our first point, the unifying power of true graciousness. Again, this point is going to focus on the author, Paul, as he introduces his appeal for reconciliation. Let's read the text together, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, except where noted. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. These are deeply personal, gracious, beautiful, kind, loving, sweet words. It almost begs the question, why are these words so gracious? And one reason that's very clear is the scriptures praise graciousness in speech. Proverbs 16, 24 states as follows. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 22, verse 11 states, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 12 from the NESB Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. And it's more than that. As I said, this section introduces an appeal, and the scriptures specifically praise graciousness for the sake of persuasion. Proverbs 16, 21 states as follows, the wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Proverbs 25, 15, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. I mean, that's such beautiful imagery, isn't it? How just graciousness, gentle, kind words can be so strong as to be able to break a bone. So again, Paul is setting up this appeal in this, in this section. He, he, he is, he's about to make a request. And really, when you think about it, it's only really logical, right, that you want to be nice and kind and polite before you ask for a favor, I mean, you know, you, you, you know, what's the alternative, right? To be a jerk for, to the person that you're about to make a request to, that, that doesn't make any sense in the world or in Christ. But the reality is, the scriptures praise graciousness. And, and again, the reality is, you can have a huge influence on people who really like and respect you. But there's another reason for this exceedingly gracious opening praise of Philemon. Although it looks like a private letter, it's really addressed as we saw in verses one and two, it's addressed to Philemon and to his family and to the whole church in his house. And really the reality is that the church in Philemon's house most likely was in fact the church at Colossae because Colossae at that time was not a large city and the reality is that before 200 AD, churches usually met in private homes. And, And as we know also from elsewhere in scripture, Letters were often written for an entire, even though they were personal letters, they are often written for the entire church and we know that from books like First and Second Timothy and Titus. And, and even more than that, these letters, as you may know, were often circulated to other churches in the area. So it really would have an even wider audience than you might initially anticipate. So another reason for this praise is I think brought out very well by Pastor John MacArthur who states as follows. I mean, it's part of wisdom, isn't it? to deal out praise whenever and wherever it is possible, for praise itself becomes a nourishing food for virtue. Did you understand that? Praise itself, legitimate praise, becomes a nourishing food for virtue and a strong antidote against sin. If someone comes to you and says, I want to tell you, I look at your life and I just thank God that you're a godly, virtuous person, that that you're a holy Christian. Believe me, that's food that nurtures virtue. And at the same time, that's an antidote against sin, isn't it? Because if you know people see you that way and believe you're that way, that accelerates your desire for virtue and your desire to stay away from vice. Now, there's an important point here, and I stress the word legitimate praise. And that's why this first point is the unifying power of true graciousness. So what I'm not saying is I'm not saying to be flattering. I'm not saying to be insincere. And in fact, we know from scripture, Proverbs 26, 28 states, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Insincere graciousness is also known as flattery. It's also known as deception. It's also known as duplicitous speech, which is a hateful thing as we've been talking about these last months. It's a thing that is more well-suited for Pharisees than for saints, that notion of insincere graciousness, that, that friendly face to your f- face, but saying something completely different behind your back, and, and that's hateful in Scripture. But the thing we know here is that Paul is definitely not flattering. He, he's telling the absolute truth inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's not seeking any kind of selfish gain or personal interest here. He's just giving legitimate praise of Philemon here in this letter. So that's one thing I'm not saying. I'm not saying to flatter or to be insincere, but I'm also not saying that rebuke is bad or that we somehow need to be blind to others' flaws. It's an important reminder to make that we are in fact commanded sometimes to rebuke, but I also want you to recall Galatians 6:1, which states, "Brothers, if anyone is caught in a spirit in any transgression, you who are spiritual should re- restore him in a spirit of gentleness." I have to be honest, I have, I've looked, I've made a diligent search, and I haven't, I haven't found any praise in scripture of the notions of being frank or blunt or, or plain spoken, really. There's this kind of concept we have in America. It's like, I just tell it like it is. You know, there's this, there's this concept, and that might be a very American attitude that might also be common even in, in certain Asian cultures, but it, it's not a scriptural virtue. In fact, the scriptures say, Always be gracious in speech. Colossians 4, 6 states that. Let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so that's really a far cry from uh, taking even, some people I think even take pride in being blunt or being telling it like it is guy. You know, you know that, but you know, that's, that's really not, the scripture doesn't say to take pride in that. In fact, that type of attitude, and I'm not gonna say this is in every case, but it can sometimes conceal impatience. It can sometimes conceal a lack of love, a lack of temperance, or even an unwillingness to express care and love and concern at times we see Paul doing something quite the contrary here and modeling graciousness here in these first seven verses. And if we want to follow Paul as he follows Christ, he is a model not only for the church there, he is a model for us today. So again, true graciousness, legitimate praise, true graciousness is a huge blessing. It's a unifying power for reconciliation. But again, I, just to reiterate, there, there's a huge danger in being gracious only to someone's face, you can't praise someone to his face and tear him down behind his back. That's why you have this need to be sincere and earnest like Paul in your graciousness. I mean, the, you know, you, uh, there may be a situation you might think you're just saying some nice words just to be nice to someone. But when you say something you don't really mean it, that's not being nice, that's lying. And that is a clear and obvious sin. Now, if you honestly don't feel graciousness in your heart about someone, the long-term answer is not to just shut up and never praise anyone, right? The longer-term answer is to really repent of your own bad attitudes, of your unwillingness to believe the best, of maybe you're recognizing just, you know, the specks in others' eyes before you see the planks in your own. It's to recognize those tendencies within yourself and to repent of those things and then to see the best in your brother and then to genuinely and sincerely be able to offer that encouraging word, that gracious word, that legitimate praise. And when you do this, when you do that heartwork work on yourself, your love for others will foster greater unity in the body. So that's our first point, the unifying power of true graciousness. Our second point focuses on the bearer of this letter, Onesimus, the unifying power of the transforming gospel. Let's read verses eight through 16 together. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord.'" So we have this beautiful section right after Paul graciously and truthfully praises Philemon in verses 1 through 7. We have verses 8 through, 4, 8 through 16 beginning with the transitional word accordingly. Anytime you have one of these, these transitional words, it's a good time to just kind of sit up and, and take a little notice because it's basically saying that everything up to this point, everything that went before leads into the passage in front of us. And again, this graciousness demonstrates how uh, just it it leads into this passage that talks about how the power of the transforming gospel changes everything. This is indeed where we, this section is where we get the title of this sermon, An Appeal for Reconciliation, because the word appeal appears twice here. In the Greek, it's perakaleo. And this Greek word is, it connotes a legal argument that that, that a, a, a person is presenting evidence before God. So when Paul says here, "I appeal to you for my child Onesimus," I mean this is just such a beautiful. He's presenting an argument in addition to conveying just such a sense of love. I mean, I mean, read the pathos in those words—that earnest care for Onesimus, his child Onesimus. I mean, think about what love that Paul is showing for this former escaped slave. I mean, it almost, I mean, it almost begs, how could Philemon even, even think, begin to think about mistreating Paul's own child? And as we'll see a little bit later, Philemon is also Paul's spiritual child. Pa- Paul is also instrumental in Philemon's salvation. So when you think about it, if, Paul, if Philemon is Paul's spiritual child and if Onesimus is Paul's spiritual child, that makes them both brothers, spiritual brothers in, in, in a very real sense, in addition to generally in Christ. So Paul then continues, he, he goes through this in verses eight through 10, he's, he's laying out his evidence before God and Philemon as, as part of his bold appeal on behalf of Onesimus, the focus of this second point. I mean, let me paraphrase, but he's going, he, he's saying, you know, Philemon, I could order you, but I'm not going to. That demonstrates the trait of forbearance. He's saying, I love you and you love me too, essentially, and that, again, demonstrates a very clear love that Paul is expressing for Philemon, and he knows Philemon loves him back. Paul says, I am old and a prisoner, and highlighting these scriptural themes of, of compassion. He says, he basically says, I'm suffering, I'm suffering here in, in prison for Christ's sake, which illustrates the concept of sacrifice. And then he talks about Onesimus being Paul's spiritual child in the faith, which, ne- which illustrates the necessity and critical importance of evangelism. Paul is making all these reminders of godly characteristics to Philemon, and he's doing this because we need those reminders because of our sin. We need these reminders all the time from the preaching of the word, from trusted friends who will give us a timely word and give us an encouragement or or confront us or rebuke us when necessary. Uh, let Let me read for you 2 Peter 1, verses 12 and 13. This is Peter speaking to the church, therefore... I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. So these reminders are so critical. These reminders that we give to each other, that we hear week after week. Just We may know all of these things are good things. We may know it's good to forgive and to reconcile, but just to be reminded of that from scripture, from God's holy word, that is a blessing indeed. So we have Paul proactively reminding Philemon about godly characteristics as, as Paul makes this appeal for reconciliation with Onesimus. And that reconciliation is really the ultimate theme of the gospel, a reconciliation between God and man. But let's continue into the text. I, I mentioned the focus of this second point is on Onesimus. Now, Onesimus, as, as I mentioned, fled Colossae, fled Philemon, and went all the way to Rome, over 1,000 miles away. Yet somehow... In his divine providence, God saved Onesimus through Paul, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I mean, just just the providential, I mean, Rome is a big city, right? And just for Philemon to come across Paul and and for God to save, uh, for Onesimus to come across Paul in Rome and and for God to save Onesimus through Paul's ministry, you know, that, that is amazing providence, so Paul, Paul, Paul continues to say, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Now it's important to note, you may not know it just immediately upon reading it, but in the Greek, this is, a, this is so critical to know. This is actually a major play on words because Onesimus means useful. The word Onesimus means useful. But there's a synonym for this word useful, Onesimus, in, in the Greek language. That synonym for useful is the word euchrestos, and that's the word that is used here in this text in the ancient Greek. So if the word useless in Greek is the word, if that's the word useful in Greek is eukrestos, But in contrast, the word useless in Greek is crestos, which is also, again, that's, that's the word used here for useless. But the play on words here is that these words are almost identical in sound to the word kristos, which is the Greek word for Christ. So you Christos would mean full of Christ or useful. And a Christos would mean without Christ or useless. So we have here in this beautiful picture that the one named Onesimus, the one named useful, he was actually once both useless and Christless. But now, after receiving the transforming gospel, he is both actually useful and full of Christ. And, and again, this is a point because ancient Greek speakers and the, the, the listeners of this letter would actually find this very clever and amusing, and it would just be a very it would be a very powerful point in the course of Paul's presentation of this appeal. And just that very concept is just probably the most amazing thing to me. To go from a rebellious escaped slave to someone who is actually useful to the apostle Paul in ministry is just amazing. It it illustrates the radical heart change which can only be achieved by the gospel. This is what I'm talking about by the unifying power of the transforming gospel. It can only be achieved through Jesus Christ, the perfect uh, holy God who came down from heaven condescending to man, living a life here on earth, holy man, holy God, living a perfect sinless life and yet only to be condemned by sinful men to die on a cross, taking upon himself the sins of all who would ever repent and believe. And then he was buried and raised in the third day, demonstrating his victory over sin and death. This is the transforming gospel that can turn a rebellious escaped slave into someone useful to the Apostle Paul. And that is a miracle, but it gets even, in some level, on a human level, it gets even more incomprehensible because this is the level of the transforming gospel that even though Onesimus is useful to Paul, Paul is still sending Onesimus all the way back over 1,000 miles to Philemon in Colossae. Here's what's, I mean, Onesimus was so transformed by the gospel that he actually agreed to go back. Over, he, he agreed to travel over 1,000 difficult miles from his new home in Rome, all the way back to where he had come before. This is how important reconciliation among brothers is. Let me read for you Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. This, this shows that your worship is hindered when you are not reconciled with your brother. Now, we know that, Ph- that Onesimus actually went and made it all the way back to, to Colossae and Philemon because this letter survived. It was preserved. It is in the canon of scripture. But again, I just want you to just wrap your minds around this concept. Remember that slave owners in Phrygia could serve as judge, jury, and executioner over slaves. So Onesimus was returning, humbling himself, and returning all the way back over this difficult, treacherous, long journey to the possible death sentence awaiting him, and yet he still went. Who would ever do that? I mean, that's just like a slave voluntarily returning to his master to a possible death sentence and to a possible continuing enslavement. I mean, that is, that is unthinkable. That, that's unthinkable today, and that's unthinkable in the ancient world. And, and yet that is the transforming power of the gospel That that is how God can take a man's heart and completely change it, all for the sake of reconciliation. And again, just that is the transforming power of the gospel. Well, let's keep going in this section and finish out this point. Go to verses 15 and the first part of verse 16. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Once again, we see this complete gospel transformation of Onesimus highlighted. This this unifying power of the transforming gospel because a slave and his master are becoming brothers here. This point is reinforced in Colossians 3.11. Speaking of salvation, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. These concepts stress that the gospel and salvation go to all people with no favoritism, no partiality. And when you're, when you're brothers in Christ, it totally crushes Negative just these these views of like bigotry and discrimination and negative views on the basis of race or class. I mean again, just when you think about the ancient world and how strictly segregated they were in, in areas of, of race and class and gender, and all of these different things. Just what a radical concept that is. Just to have this 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 unity between a slave and a master. It is unthinkable in the ancient world. It's in many levels, it's still unthinkable today. It's still a radical concept today. But in Christ, these distinctions just fade in importance as unity grows and grows and grows. Let's continue on. The second part of verse 16, uh, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is not only a reminder to Philemon and to Colossae that Onesimus is loved by Paul, but it's just, it's just an interesting picture because it's an interesting point. I want you to note here, Paul is actually acting as an advocate and a mediator here for two believers who, are, who, who had a dispute, even though Paul is actually not part of the Colossian church at this time. So that's an interesting point, but it's also an interesting point that Philemon should love Onesimus even more than Paul because they are now brothers in the Lord, but Paul and Onesimus are also brothers in the Lord, but the unifying power of the transforming gospel is such that on top of their unity as brothers in the Lord, the earthly relationship between Onesimus and Philemon is also repaired. I mean, think about that. Onesimus has humbly returned to reconcile with Philemon, despite a thousand or more miles of danger, a possible death sentence, and the prospect of future slavery. He, he, he has humbled himself, and he has done that. Meanwhile, Philemon, on his part, he now has a loyal, hardworking, profitable, and useful slave, whereas he once had a rebellious and useless slave, to use play, Paul's play on words. So not only, again, is this, there's this brotherhood in Christ, but there's this repaired relationship, this reconciliation between a, a, a master and his former slave. And that, that is, again, just, that is the power of the transforming gospel. It is, it, is, it is incomprehensible, it is a miracle, and yet that is what God does day after day after day. And that's where I think we need to remember that our Christian brothers and sisters have been bought with a price, that of the infinitely precious blood of Jesus Christ. I think all too often we forget this. I think we're all guilty of this. And we forget our love for our brothers and sisters due to even to, to trivial slights that are ultimately meaningless from an eternal perspective. But when we consider things like these personal slights or offenses, Really, uh, a dear pastor who's actually uh, a friend of mine, he, he said something that really stuck with me, an imperviousness to personal offense is a key sign of spiritual maturity. I mean, the contrary is, when we allow personal offenses to deny our love for our brothers, we are denying the transforming power of the gospel. Not only that, we also are corrupting our witness to the outside world. Let me read for you John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And even more than that, to the extent that there is not love, to the extent that there is hate or a a lack of love, it's even appropriate for a Christian to examine his salvation, First John chapter four, verses twenty and twenty one say, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, there's this there's this need for a genuine love, not just a go be warmed and filled type of love, but a love that actually acts, a love that cares, a love that is is genuine. It's not just someone, you know, It's not you can't just give yourself a pass because you tell yourself, oh, I don't hate that brother, so I'm okay. The, the ending of First John 4.21 says that whoever loves God must also love, and this is an, an affirmative type of love, must also love his brother. And that's the critical thing to remember about the transforming power of the gospel and the unifying power of the transforming gospel and how that unity, that understanding can lead to so much greater joy, so much greater reconciliation, and so much greater unity in the body of Christ. So that's our second point, the unifying power of the transforming gospel. Now, let me recap a little bit before we launch into our third point. Our first point was the unifying power of true graciousness. In in this point, we saw Paul modeling this sincerely with great benefit and blessing and love, this, this model of graciousness. Our second point, the unifying power of the transforming gospel. We saw Onesimus being completely and radically transformed from useless to useful, becoming a brother to his master. And now, our third point, the unifying power of tremendous gratitude. And here we will see the gratitude of Philemon resulting in unity and reconciliation. Let's read verses, uh, the next uh, last section of scripture together through verse 25, 17 through 25, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, when you read this passage, something may strike you, and I'm going to address that point first. Isn't Paul kind of giving Philemon a guilt trip here, right? I mean, you read these these verses. It kind of reminds you. It's like you know your mother saying, you know, I was in labor for labor for you for over 24 hours, and you can't even clean your room. You know, you know, it's that type of like kind of like, oh, you know, you're really laying it on thick here, Paul, aren't you? I mean, and when when this happens, it can sometimes it can rub us the wrong way, right? Because it, it violates our sense of independence. Because you know, just you know, they're trying to get you to do something. It may even be something you don't want to do, right? And you know, mom's guilt trips may also have bugged us because they were often very true and very effective, right? That that often was a dynamic, you know. And this this is kind of the, the concept, you know, when someone guilt trips you, you know, they're trying to get you to do something. And, and you know, a lot of times our flesh hates that, especially here in the very individualistic, independent-minded United States of America. But there are some critical differences here from a classic guilt trip, as we might classically understand it. Number one, Paul is not being selfish. He's actually being selfless. His motive is pure here. His desire is to benefit Onesimus. His desire is to benefit Philemon. His desire is to benefit the local body. His desire is to foster unity within the entire local church. He's trying to benefit Philemon because Christ is magnified if Philemon forgives Onesimus with the right motive. Paul is getting no benefit here, remember that. He's sending away his helper because Onesimus was very useful to Paul in ministry, but Paul sent him away to go be reconciled to Philemon. There's no benefit to Paul in that. And, And even more than that, we see that he... In verse 19, Paul even offers to pay for it all. If there's any wrong that Onesimus has done to Philemon, Paul is saying, charge that to my account. And that wasn't just an empty comment. You know, Paul actually had resources. He had churches, you know, sending him, you know, support. He was in Rome. If you're a prisoner in Rome at this point in time, you needed to have that support. Otherwise, you would starve. So, so Paul had resources. This is not, you know, just him kind of saying it. He, he was making a genuine offer here. So that's, that's important to note that Paul is being very selfless here. It's also important to note that there's no manipulation here. Paul, Paul is not manipulating. He's actually being very upfront and transparent, right? He's, he's writing this all out plainly. And it's not just to Philemon, it's to his family and the entire church. He, he's very clear about what he wants to do. And, and Paul's goal here, it's to promote godliness. It's to promote a godly response in another person. So instead of using the word guilt trip, a much better word to use here is Conviction. I mean, it's just like when you hear someone faithfully preaching the word of God and your, your heart is pricked, that, that's conviction. That's not a guilt trip. That's, that's genuine. That, that's an understanding that the word of God just lays out exact, like how we should be living our lives if we want to honor the Lord. And, and that's such a blessing just to know what God says in his word and, and what would honor him and what would not honor him. I also want to note another highlight, another dynamic here because I think it's important. Paul... Is using the strength of his relationship with Philemon in order to spur him on to godliness, to holiness. And I highlight this point because there's a danger, I mean, there's a general danger in the church universal for sure, but there's also a danger that I've perceived specifically here that sometimes people can make relationships more important than the Word of God. And they may not say that explicitly, they may not think that, that may be an unthinkable concept to them, but in actual practice, what works out is, sometimes those relationships, you know, are more important. And, and, and when that happens, when people have too much fear of man to bring forth the word, even or especially when close friends are acting wrongly, when they're, when they're doing wrong, when they're, when they're not acting honorably, or when they're sinning, you know, just, you know, there's a sense, oh, I don't, I don't want to preserve the relationship. You know, I don't want to bring that to him. That'd be a really hard word, and they may not be able to bear it at this time, and, you know, they may not like me afterwards, and, you know, th- there's this notion. But the problem is when this happens, you are wasting the stewardship of your relationships. I mean, what good is that relationship if you aren't spurring each other on toward Christ What good is that relationship if you are not iron sharpening iron as one brother sharpens another? If you you don't have the courage to stand on the word of God more so than the relationship, then that relationship quickly becomes spiritually worthless. So, I mean, again, you know, this whole concept, you know, just getting back to when we think about the concept of guilt trips, you know, I think we're unfortunately, we're far too likely to be trained in the ways of cynicism here in the United States. So we may be inclined to doubt Paul's motive or even to criticize his actions. But the reality here, again, this is conviction. And that that sense, that sense, I mean look, even the concept of guilt, guilt can be helpful when it actually motivates you to go straight to the cross. You know, when we realize we're guilty about something, that's when we all the more praise God. It's like, Lord, I am a sinner, I fall short, I blew it, but you have provided your precious son who has filled the gap and paid for all my sins. Praise him indeed. Such a radical concept. You know, just, just that this notion of conviction can be a good thing. This notion of, you know, uh, of guilt that is dealt with at the cross can be a good thing. And it can kick against your flesh. I know it certainly has kicked against mine in the past, but it's just such a beautiful concept. And it just, again, leads us to greater and greater gratitude. And that leads us to our point, the unifying power of tremendous gratitude. And it's that point because Philemon's gratitude is ultimately what motivates him here in this text. Now, we know that's the case because we know that Paul is not utilizing his authority here. I want you to recall verses 8 and 9 and verse 14. I'll read them together. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. This is the apostle Paul. He, he, he can do miracles. He had unbelievable discernment he, he was the writer of the most inspired texts of any author in the new testament just in terms of number it, this was a man who the lord used to just evangelism and, and the cause of christ exploded throughout the, the, the asia minor and europe as a result of this man if anyone could give an order and expect it to be obeyed with joy it would be the apostle paul right If anyone had had earned that ability, so to speak, it would have been the Apostle Paul, right? But you know, he's not using authority here. Even Paul is, is, is not leaning on authority. He's instead leaning on consent. Again, Paul, I mean, you see all three of these actors, Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon, all of them are actively trying to crush down authority and rebellion and instead encourage a voluntary goodness. Paul, he had the power to compel, like we just talked about, but instead he asks for consent. In this way, he is not lording it over Philemon, which is condemned in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. You have Onesimus. He had the power to run away or to refuse Paul's request to go back, but instead you see Onesimus humbly returning. And in this, he is humbling himself to his leader, which is commanded in 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6. And you see him actively seeking reconciliation with his brother, which is commanded in Matthew 5, 23, and 24, which I read earlier. And finally, we have Philemon. And again, because he is the focus, we're going to talk about him a little bit more. Philemon here, he has the power to execute his slaves, but instead, he's being asked to forego that authority, that judgment, and asked to forgive, to reconcile. Philemon is benefited here if he forgives. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who, as he's benefited here, because his goodness will not be compelled, but it's rather of his own free will, as as Paul says. I mean, again, when you think about it, it's kind of easier to just have blind obedience, right? It's like, oh, you do what I'll do, whatever you say. You know, I'll go, and you know, it's it's easier, but it's not as spiritually beneficial as if you actually process through it yourself. It's not as spiritually beneficial is if you actually walk through it and understand why it's a good thing to do this. I also want to highlight, giving Philemon a choice here, it minimizes the chances of resentment and bitterness, you know, compared to if Paul had commanded him. You know, there might be some underlying seed. If Philemon is a godly man, we see it in the pages of Scripture, but there still might be some, he might've, it might have been hard for him to swallow. It's like, oh, Paul made me, you know, forgive my slave, you know. And again, you know, just, it's better for Philemon if he does this of his own free will rather than being commanded. It also benefits Philemon's reconciliation with Onesimus because if he does this voluntarily, if he reconciles with Onesimus voluntarily, Onesimus never has to wonder, "Well gosh, you know, I wonder if the only reason that he forgave me is because Paul ordered him to." You know, there might always be this question, you know, is there really a, a healed relationship between Onesimus and Philemon? We see here that love and gratitude is a far better motivator than force or coercion. It's really illustrated very well, I believe, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which I'll read for you. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It is far better for Philemon to give up his slave willingly, cheerfully, than under compulsion. Now, I also want to highlight how this beautiful, just unifying power of tremendous gratitude, how, how being, doing these things willingly rather than under compulsion, how gratitude to Paul and gratitude to Christ being the motivator is so much better, how it also benefits the entire local body. Now, just, I want you to remember that if these are weighty words to us here in the United States, how much more weighty were they to the honor-shame culture in the ancient Near East in that area? Remember, Colossae was in Phrygia, and hard treatment of slaves was very common there. And Onesimus running away, as counterintuitive this might be to us, you know, Onesimus running away actually would have shamed his master. That's the reality in that honor-shame culture. And so the public expectation of the people in Colossae is that Philemon should punish Onesimus. That would have been the public expectation. And as you know, public expectation is a huge issue in honor-shame cultures. Even when you have a regenerated local body, old thinking still dies hard, right? It's not easy to just flip a switch and suddenly you're sanctified saint number three. You know, that doesn't doesn't work that way. It's just, you have to process through it and sometimes old habits, you know, it's hard. We we need to just mortify the flesh and, and just strive in holiness, but it certainly is not always easy. So Paul's reminders here are not just for Philemon, who is a very godly man again. It's for the entire local church. Remember, this letter is being read to the church. And if Philemon here, if he models godliness and becomes an example of forgiveness for Colossae, what, what an incredible example that is for the people in Colossae. And, and indeed, he receives good and appropriate public honor in such a case. To the extent that he doesn't forgive, and again, this doesn't appear to be the case, I don't believe this is the case, but, you know, the alternative to that would be public shame, right? Because James 2.13 states, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Paul here, he's boldly reminding not only Philemon, but also the entire body here to act in an honorable way, to be forgiving, to be loving, He's, and, and by this example, the church at Colossae is helped, it's assisted in breaking with the old thinking in putting off the old man, renewing your mind and putting on the new man by the power of this good example. Let's continue on and consider verses 17 through 20. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing if you're owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, I want you to remember, this is not a guilt trip. I want you to remember, Paul is not using authority here. The key here, the key to this, this is really the concept of Philemon's tremendous gratitude to Paul for bringing the gospel to him and ultimately Philemon's tremendous gratitude to God for saving him. I mean, think about it. Who wouldn't want to benefit and refresh someone that God used in saving you? And when we reflect on that, when we remember our gratitude to God, our gratitude to the instruments that God used in our salvation, that becomes a powerful motivator toward reconciliation and unity. The parable of the ungrateful slave is, uh, I believe I've referred to it a couple of times here in the past. It's in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And uh, in this parable, you see a slave is forgiven 10,000 talents of gold by his master, which equates to 5 billion with a B dollars in today's money. But then later on, this forgiven slave begins choking a fellow slave who can't repay 100 denarii, which equates to about $5,000 in today's wages. That slave who was choking his fellow slave and was unforgiving is handed over to the torturers, it says. This parable illustrates, Philemon illustrates, that tremendous gratitude for salvation must inform all of our actions and attitudes. A tremendously grateful person won't sweat the small stuff, even when the small stuff is $5,000. A tremendously grateful person won't be a complainer or a pessimist. A tremendously grateful person won't demand justice for every single wrong they've suffered. A tremendously grateful person won't cling to grudges or bitterness. It's really such a beautiful thing. It's such a powerful motivator. Tremendous gratitude and how that can be a powerful unifier for the church. Let's look on verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now, I want to be clear here again. This is not obedience to Paul. We've already established that, right? Paul is not using his authority. Paul has confidence in Philemon's obedience to God and his word. That's the beauty. In fact, Paul is so confident in Philemon's godliness and Philemon's obedience to God and his word that Paul knows that Philemon will do even more than Paul is asking. He, he, he will do even more than welcoming Onesimus back as he would Paul. It doesn't say clearly what that welcome was, but I, I have an idea what that was. And we'll, we'll get to that. It, it's just... You know, the last few verses after that are kind of a postscript, and in that uh, you see Paul's very typical graciousness. You you see Paul writing about his confidence in the Lord and his future freedom, uh, his release from prison. It's really a very, again, you see it, just it's characteristic of Paul's gracious, loving writing. But beyond that, there's also an unwritten postscript, which is drawn from ancient church letters and records. And it's, it's important to note, these are not inspired or inerrant. So again, it's, uh, it's, just, it's not uh, you know, 100% fact, truth. But it's, it's reasonably decent evidence as, as things go. And so I have a sense from that evidence of what may have happened, of what Paul was referring to in that, One, in that Philemon would do far more than Paul was asking of him toward Onesimus. This evidence, we have records that actually state that from about the years 107 through 117 A.D., which was the period approximately 50 years after Paul wrote Philemon, the head of the church in the very large port city, the very important port city of Ephesus, was a man named Onesimus. Now, it's true that Onesimus was not necessarily an uncommon name for slaves. How many of those slaves happened to live close by Ephesus, as Colossae was? How many of these slaves were directly converted through the Apostle Paul's ministry? How many of these slaves co-labored with Paul in Rome and learned up and was trained in that ministry? How many of these slaves were discipled by Paul himself? I I can't imagine, there there would have to be very few if any aside from our dear Onesimus in this story. So in my mind's eye, this is, uh, uh, I think uh, it's been said to to use some sanctified imagination, if you will. I can picture it in my mind's eye that just, I just love the image of Philemon racing out to embrace Onesimus, just like the prodigal son. In my mind's eye, I envision just Philemon throwing a feast for Onesimus, his returning slave, and, and how he would even grant a young Onesimus his freedom and how Onesimus uses that freedom for God's glory, serving his people. And then you see a former slave over the course of time rising to lead a major church in Ephesus when he is old, perhaps in his 70s. What an incredible journey that would be for a former slave, a former rebellious slave named Onesimus. And yet that is exactly the type of journey that we can all have when we apply the lessons of Philemon to our own lives and our own walks and when we dwell in the unifying power of true graciousness, the unifying power of the transforming gospel and the unifying power of tremendous gratitude. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word We thank you so much for just the examples you lay out before us in scripture. We thank you just for a picture of what a godly appeal for reconciliation looks like in the words of Paul to Philemon on behalf of his beloved child Onesimus. Lord, we're taking communion today. So notion of reconciliation and forgiveness is high in my mind and i just pray that to the extent that uh, any people here maybe having any grudges or any bitterness that they would just be able to lay all of that at the foot of the cross and just walk away from it and just let christ deal with it never have to worry about it again that they would do that so that they may take communion in a worthy manner i pray that to the extent that uh, there are any known breaches, or known unreconciled relationships with other people, other believers, that people would earnestly go, seek to go to that person and, and reconcile. Romans 12:18 says, to the, "To the extent that it depends on you, do all be at peace with all people. And I just pray that um, people would make that effort, at least, to try to reconcile if there's a broken relationship before taking communion. Lord, as we take this time, I just pray that we would really take a moment to consider our lives and just to really examine ourselves. It's such a beautiful thing, communion. I just am so thankful for it and the opportunity that it provides to just really, just to dig deep into our hearts and to really just deal with any unrepented sin. Again, that we would just be able to lay it it at the foot of the cross. Father, we just thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our Savior, We just thank you in his name. Amen.